Welcome to the Buford Sermons Podcast, where we care about the things you care about. For more information or to donate to this ministry, please visit www.fbcbuford.org. Well, as we continue our study through the book of Mark, I think we understand this, that most people want Jesus on their team just not in their business, right? We like to create for ourselves a Jesus that always agrees with us. One that supports our ambitions, our dreams, our biblical interpretations, our political associations, and even our sin. But the problem is that following a Jesus that is the result of our own creativity may make us feel good but it can never free us. This is exactly why we're going to be studying through the book of Mark over the next several months. Because the whole point of the book of Mark is Mark wants us to see. He wants future generations to see the real Jesus. That's actually the theme of the whole book of Mark is the real Jesus. Now you're not going to find a whole lot of commentary from Mark as we kind of read and study through this book. You simply find the events of Jesus' life. What he did, what he said, how he died, rose again. Mark was written between 30 and 40 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you may say, well, man, that's a long time. That's a long time to wait after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to write about the events of his life. But if you think about it, it's really not. Because up until that point, the early church relied on eyewitnesses to combat heretical teachings, false teachings, things of that nature. In fact, uh, we see an instance of this uh, with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 because 1 Corinthians, uh, obviously the, the, the epistles of Paul were written before the Gospels were written. So Paul is dealing with the early church here, probably in 19 or 20 or uh, years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth, and he's combating a false teaching that has made its way into the church that starts to doubt the deity of Christ and even his resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas and then the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Listen, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Now, He's not saying 500 total. He's saying there were 500 people that saw Jesus resurrected at one time. And he says, most of those are still living. If you don't believe what I'm saying about Jesus, go talk to these people who actually saw it with their own two eyes. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So in the earliest years of the church, the Old Testament scriptures and eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection were the primary authorities. However... 30 to 40 years later, as you can imagine, many of these eyewitnesses began to die off. And so the Holy Spirit moved in the heart of Mark to write the gospel of Mark 
so that future generations to come could encounter the real Jesus. Now, last week, Pastor Stephen introduced the book with a study of John the Baptist and his message of repentance. And this week, we're going to simply build on that message of the ministry of John the Baptist because in verses 9 through 13, we find the baptism of Jesus. Now, this morning, we're going to look at three essential truths that we learn about Jesus in these five verses. And these three essential truths about Jesus that we find in these five verses are overarching ideas that are going to be recurring throughout our study of Mark. So if you missed something this morning, don't worry about it. We're going to spend the next several months kind of diving deeper and unpacking each of these truths as we encounter them in the book of Mark. This is merely an overview of what's to come. So the first thing I think we see is in verse number 9. And we see, first of all, what Jesus is doing. Mark wants us to be very clear on what Jesus is doing by showing us the mercy and grace of his baptism. In verse number 9 it says that at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Remember that. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan River. But does that bother anybody? Does that bother you? Because, think about it for a minute. What is John's purpose for baptizing people? Well, we see it in verse number 5 of the same chapter. It says, The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to John. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So the stated purpose for baptism here with John is to confess your sins. Well, hopefully you know that Jesus never sinned. So what in the world is he doing here? He's not being baptized for the forgiveness of his own sin. Rather, and this is... Just so y'all know, English is kind of a lame language. Um, if you look at the original text, the original language, verse 5, where it says, The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to John. And verse 9, where it says, At that time Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee and was baptized by John. In the original language, it shows a parallel uh, structure between verse 5 and verse 9. So what that really means for us is that Jesus is not being baptized for the forgiveness of his own sin, but he's being baptized in order to identify with the sins of others. Specifically in this event, he identified with the nation of Israel. He identified with our sin so that he could die for our sin. And all he asks of us is that we merely repent of our sin so that through him we can die to our sin. Now, it's helpful for us to remember that Jesus' early ministry, right here in this passage in particular, was pretty much exclusively to the Jews. In fact, on several occasions, he says that he came first to the Jews and then to other people, whether it be Samaritans or Greeks or what have you. 
So here in this text, as he's baptized, all of the imagery that we see, all of the, the, the symbolic events that we see here in the baptism of Jesus would have really meant something to Jewish people. And I want to show you that. In fact, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Anytime you see Jesus doing something, you need to understand this, that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and promises. In other words, he is the true and better version of all of the Old Testament pictures of salvation. Christ is the true salvation that we only catch a glimpse of in the Old Testament. Now, many of you may be familiar with the story of uh, Moses leading the people of Israel out of the slavery of Egypt and into uh, across the Red Sea and into the wilderness. Many of you are familiar uh, with that event. And it was an important event in the history of the nation of Israel. But the Apostle Paul goes so far as to describe Moses as a type of Christ and this event, crossing the Red Sea, as a type of baptism. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. When Paul says that previous generations, did you see it there, were baptized into Moses, this is parallel language to his letter to the Romans in chapter 6 and verse 3 where Paul says there that those who are saved today are baptized into Christ. He's drawing a, a correlation between Moses and Jesus. Now listen very carefully. Paul is not identifying Moses as the Messiah here. He's not. But as an Old Testament picture of the coming Messiah. And Paul identifies the Red Sea event as a type of baptism. But here's the thing. All Old Testament examples of baptism and salvation are incomplete. Because, see, Moses, under the power of God, led the people of Israel out of bondage through the baptism of the Red Sea event. He led them out of bondage, but not into the promised land. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience, because of their sin, because of their unbelief. It wasn't until 40 years later that the baptism of another led them into the promised land. And that person was Joshua. Now I'm going to read Joshua chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, and then you're going to pick up with me on the screen with verse number 14. So Joshua chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 7. It says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I'm with you as well as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. So on the screen, so, though, so when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. 
It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over, listen, opposite Jericho, opposite Jericho, hang on to that. The, the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed crossing on dry ground. So you have Moses, who was a type of Christ in the Old Testament, bringing the people out of bondage, but not into the promised land. Years later, you have Joshua, who was also a type of Christ in the Old Testament, leading the people into the promised land, but he's not the one that led them out of bondage. And years later, here you have Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, he is standing as he's being baptized in what river? The Jordan River. What river did the people of Israel cross over to get into the promised land? The Jordan River. Here's what's even crazier. It doesn't explicitly say it in the text, but scholars are pretty much in agreement on this fact that Jesus was most likely baptized in the Jordan River at Jericho. So it's very likely that Jesus was baptized in the exact spot that the people of Israel crossed from the wilderness into the promised land. So what does all of this mean to a group of people that have grown up hearing these stories about their ancestors, Moses and Joshua, leading the people of Israel out of bondage and into the promised land? What does Jesus' baptism mean to them and what does it mean to us today? It means that Jesus is the true and better Moses. He is the true and better Joshua. What others were only able to do in part, he completed in full. He is the one that not only brings us out of the bondage of sin, he's also the one that leads us into new life, who gives us a new name, who makes us a new creation in Christ. We've been changed. This is a picture of his purpose, his baptism is a picture of his purpose. And his purpose is to extend mercy to us by forgiving our sin and freeing us from bondage and to extend grace to us by giving us his righteousness. The 1994 film, The Shawshank Redemption, is about a group of men in the fictional Shawshank prison. Now, I'm not suggesting that you all make a family movie night out of The Shawshank Redemption, okay? Hear me say that. But there's something in this movie that I think is really powerful as we talk about this subject. There's a character in the movie named Brooks Hatlin. And after 50 years in jail, from 1905 to 1955, he's let out on parole and sent to a halfway house. But it's funny because before he's let out of jail, there's a scene in which he contemplates committing another crime just so he can stay in jail. But he doesn't end up doing it, and they let him out on parole, and he lasts about a week before he decides to take his own life. Now, why would somebody who's been in bondage for 50 years, who's been freed from that bondage, 
why would they choose to long for the prison and end their life in freedom? Well, it's because his identity had become who he was in the prison. He found his identity in being a prisoner. And when he was freed from that bondage, nobody gave him a new identity. Nobody gave him a new name. He didn't know how to function in freedom. And many of us fall into the same category. But I want you to know this morning that Jesus doesn't offer that kind of freedom. He offers the kind of freedom in which he frees you from the bondage of sin. And he doesn't just leave you there. He doesn't leave you in the 40 years in the wilderness. He gives you a new name and a new purpose. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. See, that's the mercy part. He frees us from bondage. Okay, he, he causes us not to have to pay for what we deserve. But he goes on, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the grace part. He both frees us from the penalty of what we deserve and gives us the righteousness of God. That's the greatest trade ever made. Amen? He not only frees us from bondage, but he gives us a new name and a new purpose. That's what his baptism really means. Mark shows us what he is doing, but not only does he show us what he's doing, Mark shows us in this short passage why he's doing it. By showing us the love and unity of his being. In verses 10 and 11 it says, Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my Son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. Now, in verses 10 and 11, we see the essence and nature of the one true God. And his essence and his nature is a God of the Trinity. He is a triune God, is how we say it. Which means he is three in one. He is both one and three. He is both three and one. Now, in our finite three-pound brains, we can't comprehend that, can we? It makes our brain want to explode a little bit just thinking about one and three, three and one. But he can't be three if he's one. He can't be one if he's three. But we know that he is. And it may, it may make our heads explode, but if you really think about it, it has to be this way. If you really think about it, even though we can't understand the concept, the implications of a triune God are very important. And I'm going to try to show that to you quickly. The fact that he is three and one means that he is love itself. See, love, in order to exist, requires more than one party, right? If you're going to experience love and or give love, you've got to have somebody else in the mix. 
You have to have another party involved in order for love to exist. So therefore, if God was one and not three, that means that he created love when he created us. And it also means that he is in our debt when it comes to love. Because if he is one and not three, then the only way he can have love is if he has our love. But we know that's not true. Because 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8 says, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. It does not say that God created love. It does not say that God instituted love. It says that God is love. And the only way he can be love, the only way his being can actually be love is if he's three and one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have existed for all of eternity and will exist for all of eternity future in perfect love, perfect harmony with each other. This doesn't make grammatical sense, but it makes theological sense that he has love for each other. It'll make your brain explode, but it makes perfect sense because if he is love, he must be three in one. But also, the fact that he is three and one means that he is unity itself. If God were three, but not one, then we'd be into polytheism, wouldn't we? We'd have multiple gods. If God the Father was one God, and God the Son was one God, and God the Spirit was one God, if they were three and not one, then you couldn't have unity. What do we know about every polytheistic system in the world? Whether it be Greek gods, or Roman gods, or Hinduism, or what have you. What do we know about that? It's that the gods are not unified. They're often at war with one another. They're often using humans as pawns in their sick little games. But that's not the God that we serve. No. He's not just three. He's three and one. Which means God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have been and will be in perfect unity with one another for all of eternity. And we see it here. We see in verses 10 and 11, the Father and the Spirit loving the Son, and the Son willingly and lovingly submitting to the plan of the Father. We see them working together for the salvation of mankind. In John 17, verses 20 through 23, Jesus says, My prayer... He's speaking to the Father. My prayer is not for the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them, listen, may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. That they may be one as we are one. I just pulled up a two. Why did I do that? <laughs> I and them and you and me. 
so that they may be brought, listen, to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved me and loved them even as you have loved me. So while it's hard for us to wrap our brains around the fact that God is one and three and he's three and one, it's impossible for us to completely understand, but we can understand this. That if he really is love, and if he really is unity, it must be this way. Now, why am I going into this? Why? I know. Listen, don't worry about it. I know you're sitting out there saying, why are you talking about all this on a Sunday morning? I just got out of the bed. I just rolled in here. And you're trying to talk to me about the Trinity? Here's why I'm telling you this. Because remember when I said that Jesus doesn't just bring us out of bondage, but he gives us a new purpose, and that's the grace that he bestows onto our lives? Well, this is our purpose. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us, again a reference to the Trinity, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So what does that mean? Does it mean that we physically look like God? Well, clearly not. I mean, look at me. You know that's not true. So what does it mean? When it says that we're created in the image of God, it means that we are called to reflect who he is to the world. And who he is is love and unity. In fact, that was the whole point of those two verses that I read to you. Did you see it? It says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. If you're an image bearer of Christ, you have no choice but to reflect his love to the world. Because you can't be in him and not have his love. And second part, John, John chapter 17, it says, The world will know that Jesus came and has loved us as... Sorry, I got confused there. The world will know that Jesus is Lord because we've been brought to complete unity. Without unity... We are not completing the call for which God has created us. So when Jesus brings us out of bondage and gives us a new name and gives us a new purpose, that purpose is to fulfill the reason for which we were originally created and it is to reflect the image of God to the world. And that includes love and that includes unity. And if that's how people know that we belong to Jesus, it's no wonder that so many people don't believe that we belong to Jesus, right? We often don't love as we should. And that don't mean overlooking sin. That does not mean stepping back from truth. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. But we can do all those things in love. The church of Jesus Christ ought to be unified. Even if we disagree on small things here or there, we ought to be unified in order that people will know that Jesus is who he said he is. As believers, we're to reflect who God is to the world in love and unity are how we do that. So we, Mark tells us in these short verses what Jesus is doing. 
And he tells us why he's doing it. It's because he's a God of love and unity. But the last thing he shows us is Mark shows us how he's doing it by showing us the trials and temptations of his battle. In verses 12 and 13, it says, At once the Spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. Now, after Jesus' baptism, there was no great celebration amongst the people. Instead, Jesus is sent out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. Now remember, this early part, the early part of his ministry was to the Jews. So this is a significant event as well. Because remember how I said that Moses' baptism brought them out of bondage, but then led them into 40 years of the wilderness because of their unbelief and disobedience? Well, in the same way, Jesus was baptized, and then the Spirit sent him into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. That would have been significant to them. Jesus wandered in the wilderness for 40 days, except he did what the children of Israel could not do. He wandered without sin. Where the people of Israel were disobedient, sinful, unbelieving, Jesus went to the wilderness and he endured every temptation that they endured. Except he did so without sin. So, how's he going to make a way for us to be restored, to be the image bearers that we were created to be? By going through every trial and temptation we will go through, do so without sin, and then die for it. So let me ask you this. If you're going through a difficult time, if you're going through a struggle, and you go to somebody for help and you say, man, I'm, I'm really struggling with this sin or I'm struggling with this hard issue that I'm going through. And that person looks at you and says, well, I, you know what? I hear what you're saying. Here's what you should do. Step one, step two, step three, step four, step five. I'm going to give you a five-step process to work out that issue in your life. Is that more helpful or is this more helpful? You go to someone... You pour your heart out to them. You say, I'm struggling with this issue. And they look back at you. And they don't give you a list of steps. But they say this. I understand. Because I've been through what you're going through. And even worse. And I will walk with you. Which one's more helpful? Of course, the latter is more helpful. And therefore, that's the kind of salvation that Jesus offers. There's a, uh, there's a poem entitled Jesus of the Scars that talks about this idea. And at the end of the poem by Edward Chilito, it says this. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. 
only our God has wounds. And to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And those wounds were given to him because of us. And he took them on our behalf. So that we could take on his righteousness. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 15 and 16 says this and then I'm done. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way. Just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Are you in a time of need this morning? I can tell you this, if you've never repented of your sin and given your heart to Jesus Christ, you most definitely are in a time of need. You need the mercy and grace that Jesus Christ offers you. And you need to know He's not offering it to you because He needs something from you. He's offering it to you because He is love and He is unity. And He simply wants to pour that love out onto your life and give you the opportunity to have a home in heaven for all of eternity. He desires to have a relationship with you even though He doesn't need one. How amazing is that? Only this kind of God would leave heaven's throne to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, and then die for our sins. He didn't ride, but he stumbled to the throne. And he did it not because he had to, but because he loved us enough to do it. So this morning, it's, it's pretty simple. Have you ever trusted in Christ as your Savior? If not, it's very simple. All you must do is humble yourself, confess your sins before Him, and He will forgive you. He will not only bring you out of bondage, He will give you a new name, make you a new creation, give you the new purpose of being an image bearer of the Creator of the universe. If you have trusted in Christ, then I wonder when's the last time you considered his mercy and His grace. When's the last time you considered that He is a, lo- a God of love and unity? When's the last time you considered everything that He gave for us? Are you reflecting the love and unity of our God? Just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. We're going to sing praises to our King. As soon as I pray, Pastor Stephen is going to come up and give you that invitation. I would encourage you to respond as God moves on your heart. We hope that you have been blessed and challenged by this message. If you have questions, prayer requests, or want to know more about how to follow Jesus, please check us out at fbcbuford.org.